So, Mark. Yes? At one point in this week's movie, Jeff Daniels finds himself in a convenience store in need of a change of clothes. And so, he goes around the store piece by piece deciding he needs each piece of clothing until he is dressed in an all-white outfit, which includes a large Virginia is for lovers t-shirt. And so my question is, if you were forced to wear nothing but like convenience store clothing themed around a particular state, what would you wear? So my answer, based purely off of looks and not my relationship to the state at all, because I have never been. Sure. New Mexico has by far the best flag in the country. Yes, if not the best, it's like a top three flag. I I think it is my number one. I think all of their graphic design that you would probably find in a convenience store would actually be cool. Because you either get the flag symbol or you get the old-timey like travel font that you see on the side of U-Haul trucks. I feel like there'd be a lot of that. New Mexico just uses good color schemes, too, where it's all like topaz and things like that. It's desert colors and turquoise. Like, what yeah. more do you need? That's a that's a pretty strong argument. I you said it. I had my answer. I don't really have much humor to add on to it because no, I that's just fine. Have a s- firm belief. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I grew up in Maryland, and <laughs> nobody loves their flag like Marylanders do, except maybe Texans. And mostly, it's because the flag is a hot pile of garbage. It's a great flag that is uh, all wrapped up in the history of Maryland's founding. And I obviously, I own some clothes with the Maryland flag on them. Although, at this point, I think the only Maryland flag clothes I own are from my sister's wedding, where all of the groomsmen were given Maryland flag socks to wear. Were you wearing Maryland flag socks? Yeah. I did not know this. You can buy any piece of clothing in Maryland with the Maryland flag on it. I once saw at a grocery store. So, like, this is the kind of thing that we would find in the scenario I set up. I was at the grocery store, and I saw a t-shirt that was a blue, like a Chesapeake blue crab pouring Old Bay on itself, and the places where the Old Bay hit the crab turned the crab into the Maryland flag. I have never heard anything more accurate in describing the state of Maryland's weird vision of itself. (laughs) It was kind of amazing, and there's a part of me that regrets not buying it. I am shocked you didn't, and a little disappointed in you. They only had extra larges, I checked. I mean, still, you buy that as an extra large, and you give it to Mora to wear as a crop top. I thought you were going to say to wear it as scrubs, like the time I got her DreamWorks Trolls scrubs for Christmas. I don't think a convenience store t-shirt would make the best scrubs. But now just imagine if it was cut into a crop top and worn over some baggy jeans. That's Gen Z fashion, baby. (laughs) That is Gen Z fashion. Uh, Those teens. (laughs) Those teens. So uh, realistically, I would probably do Maryland. If the premise is like I have traveled somewhere and I have to do one based on like that state's iconography, then I have two answers. Uh, One is Wyoming. Because the Wyoming flag is pretty much just a buffalo, and that's cool. Good choice. The other one is Ohio, because I'm presuming that all of these novelty clothes would be shaped like the Ohio flag, and I think it would be funny to have to wear clothes like that. I would never want to rep Ohio, unfortunately. Yeah, it is I weird that Ohio's shirt, state that flag weird, like, is in a rectangle. Shape. Yeah. I gotta say, California also pretty top-tier branding. I love having a bear on a flag. I slightly resent California's bogus historical claim to having been an independent country at one point. It's hilarious. At this point, it's irony. It also leads for one of the best video game visuals of all time, which is the new California Republic flag in the Fallout world, which is set in a post-apocalyptic world full of mutated animals. A ragtag group of settlers get together to found a new government they call it the new california republic and their flag is just the california flag but the bear has two heads that that is awesome it's i do incredible. appreciate you explaining the premise of fallout to me because obviously i do not know well also the audience <laughs> the one thing there's a fallout that's set in dc right yes because that one came out when i was in high school 
and everyone was into the fact because I went to school in the suburbs and it was not covered by the game. But a lot of our like sports rivals in DC, you could like visit the nuclear wasteland of that high school, and so it was a big thing of like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go see like they got bombed to hell. Yeah, it is an alternate universe game where the transistor was never invented, so technology never gets smaller, and oh. so cars are powered by nuclear fusion reactors. <laughs> I mean, I love that. <laughs> That's what you need the plutonium for. Yes. And so the whole vibe is also like Cold War era in the 2000s. Mark, how many gigawatts would you say it takes to power one of those cars? I would wager a lot because if you accidentally stand close to one and someone shoots it, it sets off a mini nuclear reaction and you sometimes die. That rules. I'm guessing it's probably somewhere around 1.21. Sure. Whatever you say. We should do a nuclear, like a, a nuclear panic movie sometime. Yes. I was also thinking we should do another Lifetime Movie Network film because we haven't watched one of those in a while. Yeah, we probably, sometime in the new year, right? It has now been a year since we watched Pool Boy Nightmare. Here's what I'll say. I think we probably save it for 2022 unless there is a Lifetime Christmas movie. Well, obviously there are Lifetime Christmas movies, but we need a Lifetime Murder Christmas right. movie. Like, if you can find that, I say we put it on the Christmas schedule because we have not finalized that yet. I will do some digging. Yeah, because that actually would be interesting because then we would have three different junk TV networks because we're doing a Netflix. We're doing the new, like, what is it? A Food Network one? Oh, I think so. With the Pioneer woman. Yeah, Candy Coated Christmas. If there's a Lifetime Murder Christmas movie, we should do it. We've been trying to figure out how to get Melissa back on the show. Some nanny does a murder and it's Christmas. And then she like repl- puts on the mom's plausible. skin and sits there for Christmas presents. That's a little too dark for a Lifetime <laughs> Network. There could be no blood in these murders. Maybe yeah, I'm sorry. One drop Pool Boy Nightmare killed bleed. at least one person with acid. Yeah, but was there blood? No. Also, he didn't die. Oh, that's true. Just hospitalized. What a classic film. Oh, Adam. That was his name, right? Yeah, the killer. Yeah. The pool boy nightmare. The titular role. <laughs> Speaking of nightmares, should we start talking about this movie? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Because the main character goes through a pretty nightmarish scenario. Yeah, he goes to a 10-year reunion. <laughs> exactly. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important question facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it's a con that both people are playing on each other, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the madcap road comedy turned harrowing thriller, Something Wild, uh, from 1986, directed by Jonathan Demme. This movie stars Melanie Griffith seemingly predicting the existence of Parker Posey, <laughs> who was alive at this time. But come on. Come on. When she's got that black bob at the beginning and the funky jewelry, is she not channeling full Parker Posey? Well, I mean, what she's actually channeling is uh, Louise Brooks, the silent film star. Yes, I, I know. but. The hair kind of reminds me of Parker Posey in Best in Show. Have you seen House of Yes, Mark? I have not. If you want some some Parker Posey madness, that's one you should do. I love her. She's great. But (laughs) Melanie Griffith is actually not giving us Parker Posey because Parker Posey, I don't think, was acting yet. I mean, if if she was, it would have been in like Huggies commercials. Yeah, but she would not have been famous. Uh, it looks like Parker Posey had not appeared in anything yet. Her first credit is a TV movie called First Love, Fatal Love. I think we have a movie to <laughs> add to the schedule. <laughs> Sounds pretty fun. First Love, Fatal Love? Yeah. Oh, my God. Her first theatrical movie is the Coneheads movie. We have to find out if this movie is streaming. No. Okay, maybe not. I just read the uh, the one plot line. What did it say? 
true story about a young woman who learned she has contracted the AIDS virus after an encounter with a fellow student while in college. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> I'm going to be a no on that. I was picturing much more Lifetime-esque. Yeah. Uh, a shame. So, Mark, something wild. Uh, you yes. mentioned it stars Melanie Griffith alongside Jeff Daniels and Ray Liotta in like his first real film role. Like he has one really? credit before this in a movie he's barely in. Is it also a made-for-TV movie? No, it's something called The Lonely Lady. I think the 80s and 90s was the peak era for actors getting their first role in a made-for-TV movie. A pipeline we sadly don't have much of anymore. Right, I mean, we barely air movies on TV anymore. Like, I mean, the broadcast networks used to air movies pretty regularly, and during the pandemic, basically because of a lack of programming, CBS brought back the Sunday night movie, but they're the only name in the game. I mean, it makes sense. There's so many ways to watch movies now. Right, but there's the thing of, like, even when we were growing up, like... The wonderful world of Disney would do, like, their Sunday night made-for-TV movies all the time. And, like, that's where the the Brandy Cinderella that everybody loves, that's where that came from. Or, like, I grew up with the Victor Garber version of Annie, which is from that. TBS used to just play movies, and Comedy Central would just play movies during the day. And then at night is when they actually had their original programming. Yeah. Now it's mostly uh, sitcom reruns. Right. <laughs> it's The Office on all those channels. <laughs> it is probably much cheaper. So really, honestly, it is a nice thing sometimes to like flip around and, and catch the middle of a movie, which basically these days you get from FX, HBO, and I do it sometimes on good old Pluto TV. Like I was sick last week and I watched 15 minutes of a James Bond movie, like just the climax. Honestly, you probably don't need a lot of context for that in a James Bond movie. It was pretty great. I don't know which one it was because again, I just caught like the middle of it, but it was a scene of James Bond, like they were... Something to do with nuclear submarines, and he was trying to stop missiles from launching, and he had to sneak across a room. So he came in through the ceiling, dropped down on a ball, like a big ball that was the security camera. So then he had to ride it around the room until he got to the place he was going. And it was moving very slowly, you know, it being a security camera on a track with a human man sitting on top of it. And it's incredibly slow, but the James Bond theme is playing at full blast. Like, it's the most epic thing you've ever seen. That sounds incredible. Was it, it was a great. Connery one? No. Yeah, I was, like, in between vomiting from food poisoning, and I would come back and just watch that. It was, it was exactly what I needed. That's how I watched Riverdale. <laughs> in between <laughs> bouts of vomiting from food poisoning. The best way to watch Riverdale. All right. Now, as I said, the movie we're talking about is Something Wild, which you had never seen before. I had not. No. And I watched it and very early on, and then it was doubled down at the turn. I thought to myself, this is a movie that I will enjoy and will will love. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> this was my second time seeing it. And the first time I was like, this is pretty good. And this time I was like, this movie is incredible. <laughs> I will say, I want to address it at the beginning. Back-to-back movies with assault on women. Definitely kind of, because I watched them pretty much back-to-back. You're talking about this and Dangerous Liaisons. Dangerous Liaisons. Was that, that was last week, right? No, it was a couple weeks ago. Okay. So, (laughs) we're recording out of order. And I watched this and Dangerous Liaisons back-to-back. And it just was two examples of movies using sexual assault too lightly and just assault in general in movies and it was a real bummer and in dangerous liaisons i honestly was able to stomach it more because the movie is like these are the worst people on the planet so i just i don't know it was too much too fast i didn't expect to have this the audience has a nice break with the sign seal delivered from heavy themes and dear evan hansen oh my god Wow, we're really out of order. Well, we gotta wait for Dear Evan Hansen to come out. We haven't seen it yet. Hey folks, this is Will just dropping in with a reminder that because of some scheduling things with our guest, we had to reshuffle our episodes. Dear Evan Hansen will be out next week, October 11th. So you can just stay tuned for all of the conversations we allude to here. Oh my god. 
Yes, I just remembered I have to watch Dear Evan Hansen again. In theaters, baby! I will not be watching it in theaters. I do not want to support this monstrosity. Mark, it is the only way you're going to be able to see is it. it. Not, a- is it not doing streaming? I thought it was a Netflix movie, too. It's a universal picture. This Ugh. is Universal's big awards play this year. Oh, they are f***ed. Oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, but yeah, so I just feel like after watching the last movie into this one, I just was a little less forgiving of it. And I think it's just treated very cavalierly in all film. And it's kind of an issue I just have with movies, unless the movie is like about it and handling it well. For the most part, I think it just kind of detracts for me in some ways. I think that's fair. And I think that Honestly, the fact that it is a Jonathan Demi movie makes it more alarming just because, you know, Jonathan Demi's signature filmmaking thing is like the close up staring straight at the camera. And so you have this scene of a physical assault with very much the threat of rape there. And you're right up in the character's faces as it's happening. You know, the movie does not pretend that this is like not a big deal, but it is still nonetheless deeply unpleasant to watch. and. Probably not a thing that needed to be there. Right. I just think a lot of times it's added for spice rather than treated for what it is. Cheap shock value. Yeah. And otherwise, the close-up face shots does work well. Oh, it's so good in this movie. And best of all, in the scene where Ray gets stabbed. Yes. That's great. It's very good in Silence of the Lambs, which is maybe the only other Jonathan Demme movie I've seen. I mean, I would believe it, unless you've seen, like, Philadelphia or... I have not. No, I think that's it. Yeah. Does he only work with Orion? I mean, he worked with Orion until Orion ceased to exist. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, I guess he's still making movies. He's not dead, is he? No, he died a couple of years ago. Oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. His last narrative film was Ricky and the Flash. Isn't that the movie where Meryl Streep and her daughter play, like, rock stars or something? Yes, it is. (laughs) What a career this man had. Yeah. And along the way, he also, like, he made Stop Making Sense and Philadelphia and the Denzel Washington Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. He was really bouncing around genre. (laughs) And and speaking of bouncing around in genre, our movie this week is something wild. Oh, yeah. Like, for Demi, this is a couple of years after his previous narrative movie, which was Swing Shift, which is a, a Goldie Hawn like, women working in World War II comedy that was a disaster. The movie got taken away from him, edited into something that he hated and that, by all accounts, is not very good. And after that, like, horrible experience, his, like, decision that he made for himself was, from now on, I'm only making movies with people that I like to work with, and I'm only making movies with the goal of having fun while I do it. Like, if it's good, great. If it's bad, whatever. We're just here to, like, all have a good time together. And, like, everybody who worked with him after Swing Shift, to this day, like, has nothing but wonderful things to say about Jonathan Demme because of just this, like, incredibly positive, like, we are here to have fun together attitude. It just goes to show you don't have to be a giant asshole on set to make a good movie. Stanley Kubrick and all other male directors in that vein. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's the guy who, in interviews... People are always just like, yeah, he was a good dude who continued to give me career advice for 30 years. And David Lynch is similar, where apparently he's just a delight to work with. And he doesn't believe in needing to be cruel to get a good performance. And yet, gets good performances. Wow. Yeah, what what a a shocker. It's almost like people are looking for an excuse to be cruel. The other thing about Demi that is like super evident in this movie, and I'm sure I'll find many excuses to talk about it, is that he just like... I mean, part of it is just, like, his coming out of the same thing, this, like, empathy of, like, really being invested in other people's lives and experiences. But he just has this penchant for, like, collecting kind of strange people that he encounters through his life and just putting them in movies. And so, like, Something Wild is a movie that is just bursting with fascinating people on its margins. Like, there is no generic person in a shot. Like, everyone has something going on. And most of them are just like, like, that's that person. And he decided to put them on camera. I lost it when John Waters showed up as a used car salesman. Yeah, and Charles Napier is there as the cook. But there's also, like, 
the dude in the convenience store who sells Jeff Daniels all that, those Virginia clothes is hilarious. There's like the group practicing beatboxing outside the convenience store. The policeman on a motorcycle with a dog wearing a helmet also on the motorcycle. I love the background people in this movie. Yeah. The ending of the waitress yelling at him for walking out on the check yeah. and then just starting to sing during the credits is so good. That's uh, Sister Carol East, who's in a bunch of his movies. She's a, a very good singer. Yeah. And she was like active in like the New York art scene at the time. And Demi was living in Greenwich Village. So like a lot of these are like people that he just knew from like being in his neighborhood. It is nice in this movie that Manhattan is grimy. Yeah. Like it, the people are just people. There's nothing shiny about Manhattan. I feel it's actually more what it's like to be there than other 80s movies set in Manhattan. Well, I mean... As a comparison point, over the summer we were talking about Working Girl, which is a financial district movie. And the 80s, of course, is the period of like Reaganomics and another 80s movie, you know, Gordon Gecko and Wall Street and all that. And this movie, and it is partially because of the locations and partially just because Demi has a much wider vision of like the kind of people he's putting on camera. Yeah, you get a very different view of it. I think part of the difference there, too, is it comes from movies where Manhattan is the goal she is a staten island girl who is reaching for manhattan so manhattan has to be this unobtainable goal versus a movie set in manhattan where everyone lives in manhattan you do get multiple impressions of it except that you don't see much honestly of the financial district job he has right there's also something i thought was interesting um i have the criterion collection blu-ray of this movie and in the booklet there's a quote from demi talking about the tone shift that takes place in this movie. And he's talking more broadly just about like the financial world of the 1980s, like the bond trading and all that. And he says, there was this theme of the flip side of putting on your neat suits and committing a certain kind of financial violence as a successful yuppie in a corporation. And the dark side of that is a guy like Ray, who resorts to a more fundamental kind of violence to solve his problems and to get ahead. So to Demi, he's like drawing like these finance bros, like they are, they are as violent in their own way towards society as people who go around attacking other people. And it's also saying that they set the example for the people going around attacking others, which is an interesting thought. Yeah, I thought that was really striking. That is very cool. He sounds like an interesting person. Yeah. I do think that at times in this movie, it's better than in some movies but it just falls into the 80s trap of if it's not a movie about black people, black people are used more as set dressing. I think that is true to a certain extent, except that like an 80s movie with black people as set dressing would be unusual. Like most of them just wouldn't have them at all. That is true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> valid point. But it's like they're being used to add color to the scene. And if there was not just a made white cast, the comparison is there's no fully fleshed black person on the set. So they are given personality, which is good, and they are unique and individuals. And they're like distinct personalities that aren't like stereotypical. Like the guy, again, I come back to the guy in the convenience store who sells him all the oh, clothes. Oh, he's my favorite. hilarious. He's my favorite. I love him. But it's also just, you know, they are still just, those characters are still background characters to this white person's story and it's better that it shows the world as it is but sometimes you know it was just kind of a lot without ever addressing the black experience in a way i guess it is it's interesting because it's different than at refusing to acknowledge that black people exist which is the other track 80s movies take but there's just no characters yeah, I mean, really, there are only three fleshed-out characters in this movie. There's Ray that is, and yeah. Lulu slash Audrey and, and Charles. And to be honest, you know, as this is reflective of something horrible about American society, I think it's a story that can only exist with white people to a certain extent. Yes, because I agree Because only with that. white people can be as out-and-out out reckless without any fear of any kind of real consequence. Yeah, you can't just, like, steal for fun. Right. It is very much a white privilege movie. Totally. And it's also like a white ennui movie. Like, Charles is this 
high-powered successful. You know, he's a Wall Street vice president. But he's like, oh, yeah, I'm a closet rebel. Like, I went in on those, like, 10-year munis when nobody told me I should. Like, I'm a rebel. And I get my kicks by not paying my bill at, like, a tiny corner diner. I know. He's getting his kicks in, like, the worst way because he's stealing from small local businesses. Which is where you get that Demi thing. Like, Demi would say that's what he's doing at work, too. Which he is. I mean, his job is also immoral, I'm sure. This movie has great generic Wall Street talk. Yes, there is. That means nothing. It means nothing, but it is funny always, like, how confidently Charles fires it off as though people know what he's talking about. It's a sign of how utterly disconnected he is from reality. Yes. Uh, it's great. That element of it I love. Jeff Daniels is obviously just getting started at this point. He had been in terms of endearment, and he was the lead the year before this in The Purple Rose of Cairo, which he joined 10 days into filming after Michael Keaton left the project. So, like, he's still very much on the rise. Melanie Griffith, we talked about on our Working Girl episode, she's really sort of coming into her own as an adult star. This is two years after Body Double. And then, like I said, we had Ray Liotta in his first real film role. He'd been on a soap opera for three years, a small role in one movie, and then here he is. He is very good in this. He's so good in this movie. He's so menacing while doing so little. The only problem with his performance is he's so menacing. I would, I never bought into Charles wanting to spend any time with him. I think part of, I, I kind of do get it. Not because of anything that Ray is doing in particular, but just because of who Charles is at that point. Charles is like, this is my freewheeling experience. Like, look, I'm game for anything. Like, by the time he gets to the reunion, he is ready to accept any offer anyone makes. Like, when Larry is saying, let's go to the diner, he's like, let's go to the diner. When Ray is saying, let's go out and have a drink, he's like, let's go have a drink. Because none of this is real to him. He's playing a game. Right. I just found him so scary that I think it would have burst my bubble in that moment. There's another thing Demi talked about, about the movie, which is that, like, every time they cut for a scene Leota was in, Demi would just walk out to him and go, remember, you're the nicest guy in the world. You're the most reasonable guy in the world. And so the whole movie, like, that's what, like, Leota is playing, is, like, this guy who is horrifying and is like, why won't you just do what I'm saying? I'm the, like, everything I'm saying is reasonable. I'm so nice. Like, what's your problem? That's what why makes are you it making so me do creepy. This? Yeah. You definitely get that sense whenever he commits violence of why are you making me do this? Even up to the point that he, like, smashes his way into Charlie's home. But it's still, he stills just like, this is Charles's fault that I am doing this. That's what's so compelling about that performance. Great directing. We've kind of alluded to this, and I think having that conversation just brought it into focus. One of the th big things about this movie is it pulls off a very aggressive tonal shift, really the moment Ray Liotta walks on the screen, where for its first hour, it is a pretty wacky road comedy. And then Liotta walks on screen, and it basically turns into a thriller, where the question is like, how are they going to get away from this monster? Yeah, will they survive becomes a question. And there's even a shift where, like, the first half, there's a lot of, like, pop music playing and stuff like that. And the second half, there is just this, like, brooding, like, intense thriller score. It's two movies stitched together, kind of Frankenstein, almost. And for me, it works pretty well. But I can understand why it might not for some people. I just, it did feel Frankenstein to me. I think it's an interesting choice because it is interesting to bring in the audience into the world of this you know, screwball comedy, and then they're like, all of a sudden, oh no, I'm watching a thriller. But I just didn't feel a ton of resonance between the first and the second half, basically until the diner scene after the climax. And it's for effect, I get it, but I just don't know if I resonated as much with the fact that it's, like, such a shift and it is a disconnect. Yeah, like I said, I think that's a totally valid reaction. It is the reaction most people had in 1986. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, it was it very it was very much not a hit. It like sort of broke even depending on what numbers you're looking at, but it was not a hit. <laughs> I think it's a good movie. I think it could be a better movie, personally. I think I would have just liked to have seen a bit more cohesion between the halves. I'm trying to think of what else like I think, but obviously I'm not a director, so I'm not just like my opinion is Correct, and he should do this. It's yeah, what I mean, directors I can also agree, too. Right. It is the changes that I think would have made me like it more. 
don't know. It's weird. I always find it weird to say, like, I think this movie could be improved by doing this because it's like, no, we just have different artistic visions. Right, the movie exists. It's not our job to fix the movie as much as we do that sometimes. Unless it's like, you should mix the sound better so that I can hear. Such as in the classic film, Birdemic. No, Birdemic's sound is perfect. (laughs) We would like Birdemic less if it had a good sound mix. Yes, I mean, that is true. But in terms of the director wanting to make a good movie that people enjoy. I'm pretty sure James Nguyen is convinced he made a classic, so... Yeah, I mean, he lives his life. He sounds like a complete scumbag. Yes. But I've still yet to see Birdemic 2. No, nobody wants to watch that. I learned my lesson after Sharknado 2. Um, talking about the tonal stuff, you know what's kind of odd? Uh, the screenwriter for this movie, Emacs Fry, who was, like, in film school when he wrote it, he won an Edgar Award for this screenplay. What does that mean? That's the... The Mystery Writers of America. Oh. Oh, like Edgar Allan Poe? Yes. Okay. Weird. I wouldn't say this is a mystery. Nothing needs to be solved. Yeah, I thought that was kind of strange. There's conflict, but there's never a mystery. We know pretty much everyone's lying from the beginning, but it's not like the lies are that hidden or that they're trying to solve anything. Yeah. Like, the closest thing is, like, from the drop, we don't know the extent of some of the lies. We don't know who Audrey Lulu is at the beginning. And we still don't, like, learn everything about her for a while. But it's it doesn't feel like she's a mystery to be solved to me. No. What the guy do like about this movie is that until Ray comes into the picture, we have, like, no scenes of Charles or... Audrey slash Lulu without one another. So we have all the same information that they do about who each one of them is. So like when they are lying about their identity, we only know that when we're given that information, which I think is kind of interesting. We do know some things like we know he's lying about his wife before she does. We do to a certain extent. There's the stuff where like he makes the phone call allegedly, but he's clearly talking to no one. But even there, like it's not necessarily obvious that like, his wife has left him. Like, this might be a lie he is doing for himself. I'm going through the motions of, like, yes, of course I'll make this call. But really, I'm, like, off with this, like, hot lady that I picked up. I thought we, like, knew at that point. But maybe it was just because I had read a summary of the movie beforehand. So <laughs> I already knew. I gotta say, I also am realizing I think this movie may have suffered from how I consumed it on Pluto TV. On Pluto TV. That added, like over a half hour of commercials. Yeah, that's so unfortunate. I spent a long time watching this movie. And also probably like the same like Scott's Weed Killer ad over and over yeah, again. Yeah, so I should have just broken down and rented it, but I don't like to spend $3 when I can rather just suffer. Oh, totally. No, yeah, I mean, ads on on Pluto and Peacock, the, the problem is that it's always the same ad. Honestly, it wasn't even that bad for that. Uh, Maybe it was. I just pulled out my phone and watched TikToks anytime the ad started, (laughs) which also didn't help because it's distracting. Right. I mean, that's the problem with commercials during movies in general. Because you get up and pee, you get your snacks, which is nice. And sometimes I miss that during TV shows. Because often I will go like half an hour longer having to pee than I would if there were commercials. And like just sitting there suffering, but I don't want to pause it. Um. That's just a little insight to my psychology. <laughs> but during a movie, you can really get thrown out of it because you have to just kill time. Yeah. Anyway, unrelated, peek into my life. <laughs> Look, we're all interested in your urinary habits. Um, I hope that is not true. If you want to tell us about Absolutely. what you, ha- what you do this down, when you have I to will... go to the bathroom during a movie, tweet at us, hashtag, you're in the club. That's U-R-I-N-E. <laughs> T-H-E-C-L-U-B. Tweeted us, hashtag, you're in the club to tell us what you do when you have to go to the bathroom during a movie. I don't know how I have lasted 204 episodes, honestly. (laughs) Well, we haven't recorded Dear Evan Hansen yet, so this is only 203. That is true, and I'm worried Dear Evan Hansen will break me so much, I will refuse to let any further episodes be released. No. I'm terrified of this movie. I'm sure it's a, you know, here's the thing. Some of the reviews are like, some of the pieces are good. (laughs) 
sentence. <laughs> some of the reviews said some of the pieces of the movie are good. Look, Mark, it's a casual 137 minutes. It'll be over in a flash. I hate everything. And the uh, the listeners get to listen to this after I've already been broken by right. this movie. We'll have already done like two and a half hours on why Dear Evan Hansen sucks. 137 minutes? No. No. I refuse. There, well, there's, you know, they gotta, I don't know that much about Dear Evan Hansen. I gotta, you know, show him breaking his arm. Being, I hate to admit I enjoyed the musical as I watched it. It was only upon reflection that I realized how terrible it is. And I think the movie is bad, so you will get the sense that it's bad as it's happening. Well, we will talk about all of that last week. So (laughs) I think... We can also just cut this part out. No, it's staying in. Ah, okay. It'll give them a little peek into our brains pre-broken. Yeah. But we should probably talk about the romance of something wild. Yes. All right. So... Every week, we break down the romantic plot point of a movie into five points to help guide the discussion. Mr. Redmond, as your students call you, will you take us to point one? Yeah. So our first point begins, appropriately enough, when Charles Briggs, played by Jeff Daniels, meets the woman who is calling herself Lulu, played by Melanie Griffith. Let me guess. Sometimes you don't pay for your lunch. Or maybe you steal the occasional candy bar or newspaper. You're a closet rebel. Oh, that's my uh, telepatron. I'm going to call the office. He has revealed himself to be a petty bad man when he decides not to pay his bill at a diner. And he walks out and she chases him down and is like, hey, uh, you didn't pay your bill. Which, fair. Right, he did not. But it turns out she is not, like, here to be a goody two-shoes turning him in for not paying his bill. She is fascinated by this guy in a suit who walked out on a bill on, like, you know, a $3 lunch bill at a diner. And she's basically, it almost feels satanic of the, oh, like, you committed this one sin. I bet you do these other things. I bet you steal a candy bar. It is, like, laying down the temptation to do something even worse. And she's, like, trying, again, sort of in a temptress kind of way, trying to get him to join her going along somewhere. He's like, no, I have to get back to work. And she says, fine, I'll give you a ride to work. And he gets in her car, and she promptly enters the Holland Tunnel. They are going from, I'm guessing, Midtown to the Financial District? Yeah. And instead, she heads to Jersey. And he's freaking out, naturally, because he's like, I need to get back to work. At this point, Charles Briggs appears to be the dorkiest, like, straightest guy ever, who is just like, let me get back to work. I'm gonna, gotta sell some munis. He also has to bring the money to the Christmas club, a thing I had to Google. Yes. Which is a very fascinating glimpse into American culture. Mark, tell us a little bit about the Christmas club. It started in, like, the 1900s, as in 1900 to 1910 sometime, where you would just put money from your salary into the bank, into a special account every week that you then collected on December 1st to buy Christmas presents. Right, the idea is basically, like, putting money away so that you don't feel tempted to spend it. And so you spend all year just saving up money for Christmas. And I didn't realize how long a history of people being so invested in Christmas presents there was in this country. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think the first recorded Christmas club promotion at a bank is from 1904. This This is a consumer country, Mark. And it always has been. Yeah. So he... Actually, the the Christmas Club money comes up because Lulu drives them to a, like, cheap motel. And she's like, hey, bud, like, are you going to get the room? And he's like, well, no, like, I only have my company credit card. Like, I can't put a motel in the middle of the afternoon on a company credit card. And she's like, don't you have cash? Like, are you really going to not have sex with me because you're saving money for Christmas in June? And so then he burns the Christmas money, presumably to buy Christmas presents for his kids, who he's already shown us a picture of, like him and his wife and his kids. And he goes in and... Uh, he has the little, uh, the little sex, sexeroni with Lulu. With some weird sexeroni. <laughs> yeah, it is weird where she's like shaking the, the rattle over him. 
She also handcuffs him and makes him speak to his boss while she gives him a blowjob. Yeah. She is, like, pushing his boundaries. But I don't have the sense that, like, this is a plan. Like, I don't have the sense that at this point she's like, oh, I'm going to take him to my high school reunion tomorrow. Oh, no. I don't think so. She's just going with... I, I think she's still just going with the flow at this point. Oh, definitely. It is his willingness to do this stuff where she then gets the idea to go to see her mom. So he is resistant all this way, but going along with it. And she's like, look, like... You can keep having a good time with me, or you can go back to your boring life with your you know, boring wife and you know, go to Little League games and all that. And every time it comes down to that, he always goes with her. Now, of course, what it, what it turns out, what we learn later, is that his wife left him like eight months ago. Right. He's not really cheating, which I think explains his willingness to go along with all this. But it is like a question for him every time, in part just from the, like, I never do stuff like this attitude. Right. You know what Lulu reminded me of at times? What? In the Bob's Burgers episode, the Thanksgiving one where Linda pretends to be Fish Odor's wife. Uh, the best Bob's Burgers episode? Because the woman he's trying to seduce doesn't sleep with unmarried men. Yeah. And when Lulu, at one point, I could have sworn she was about to say, I respect myself too much to sleep with an unmarried man. Yeah, I mean, she is upset. She seems upset that she's not the other woman. At one point. Well, really, I think it's it's partially just that, in a way, as much as for Charles, Lulu represents, like, something very different from his life, the opposite is true as well. Like, with Charles, she can play act at, like, oh, look at us, like, the nice married couple, and she's doing it with a married man, which, like, makes it all the more real. But then she's like, oh, you're not a married man, you're just, like, some schmuck who lied to me. Right. But we will get into that later. I think we're moving on to point two. Yeah, so they're, they're driving down the highway. He doesn't really know where they're going. They, like, stop at restaurants. She traps him in situations where he is alone and doesn't have money to pay the bill, which is how they wind up with angry chef Charles Napier chasing them down the highway. And really, it's what we said earlier. Like, they are just reckless. Yeah. They're kind of Bonnie and Clyde-esque. Without the murder. Without the murder, but they think they're smarter than they are. Kind of just going, like, getting in over their heads on shenanigans. But it's mostly, like, petty mischief, like, walking out on a meal. Right. But they raise the stakes when they start, like, really bringing other people into it, which takes us to point number two. When Lulu drives up to her mother's house, knocks on the door, and says, by the way, call me Audrey. (laughs) That was very fun. Well, Charlie, exactly how did you all decide to come down here? Audrey uh, just said, let's go visit my mother. So, here we are. Audrey is a very impulsive woman. That's one of the things I like about her. And dear, exactly when did you all get married? In September. We're still newlyweds, really. You'll have to come visit us, Mama. We have an extra room. It's going to be the baby's room someday. Charlie fixed it up. He's really good with his hands. We're getting to one of my favorite moments of this movie very soon, and I'm excited to talk about. So now they're hanging out at... Audrey's mom's house. Her mom is named Peaches. Call me Peaches. She is listed in the credits as Peaches in quotes. I actually have my sister's godmother's mother was called Peaches by everyone. Oh, wow. But so they're like, again, they are, they're playing house really is what they're doing. Yeah. They've been married since September. Audrey has changed her hair. She no longer has this Louise Brooks haircut. Now she has like Her hair's very short, but, like, it's blonde. She's wearing a nice dress. She's gotten Charles in this electric blue suit that always looks rumpled, but it's a great color. I have trouble judging the suit because I don't know the context of it. Is it supposed to be nerdy? Is it supposed to be cool? Is it supposed to be weird? Because all of the fashion at this era is so incomprehensible. It could be anything. And I feel like the meaning of the suit was lost on me. I think it's supposed to be, at the very least, super strange for him. It's definitely supposed to be a different thing. But I just, I can't read the cultural context of it because everything is so weird at this time. I do kind of love it, though. It made me think, again, with the Jonathan Demi of the giant gray suit in Stop Making Sense. The white suspenders is also very interesting. I've been thinking I should get into suspenders. I think you should not. Not like as a permanent thing, just as like an occasional thing. 
Is that because you wore them for the wedding? It is, yeah. I think they looked good. All right. You do you, sweetie. And to be clear for the audience, I was wearing nothing but suspenders and Maryland flag socks. <laughs> the suspenders <laughs> went all the way some, down to my ankles. Those are some long suspenders. <laughs> uh, wow. So while they're at Peach's house, we get to one of my favorite moments, which is where during the play acting, I think it is while she's dyeing her hair, Peaches and Charles are doing the dishes. And Peaches openly admits that she knows that it's all an act. And she actually understands the reality of her daughter and not this fake character that she's trying to play with her mom. It's a moment that makes me wonder if this has happened before. Right. Because she just, she knows everything. And she basically is just, be careful. She warns him to be careful because she knows that it's fake. And also because she knows about Ray. Oh, yeah. Because we don't know about Ray at this point either. Right. She has mentioned that she is divorced, which right. turns out not to be true. Yeah, because they're not even divorced. But so after hanging out at Audrey's mom's house, she then drives to her 10th high school reunion where she brings Charles again as her husband. Yes. And they're having a great him. time partying with everybody. Fun dancing. It does get a little awkward when somebody from Charles's office is there with his wife. That is so funny. But even he is just, like, impressed. He's like, wow, Charles, like, I thought he was, like, a putz. It's from him that we find out Charles's family left him. He's like, wow, I thought he was, like, a guy who was, like, down and out. But he's bounced back. He got a promotion. He's, like, with this hot lady. Right. And he says, you know, it seems the reason Charles' wife left him is because he was so obsessed with work and getting this promotion. But, like, even this guy, Larry, who's played by Jack Gilpin, himself is, like, kind of slimy, where... When paying for the motel with a company credit card comes up, Larry is like, oh, like, just give me a heads up. We can take care of that. Right. Like, he will approve unethical charges. His wife is fascinating. Peggy? Yeah, she hates everyone. Right from the get-go. Peggy is played by Sue Tissue from the band Suburban Lawns. She was, like, a real sort of, like, subculture figure of the early 1980s. This movie is her last public appearance. Like, oh to a point God. where, like, it is, like, entirely unknown what happened to her. She just, like, disappears from the public record. But she's not, like, dead. No, she's not dead. She just, like, has managed to, like, go totally off the grid. That's crazy. Yeah, like, there are interviews with members of the band where they're, like, the last day I heard from her was the day we decided to break up the band. And that's before this movie. That's crazy. I'm gonna go read about this. But also at the reunion, then is where we get our transition to point three, and the movie makes its transition from comedy to thriller that still has some pretty good jokes. Because that's when another member of the class of 76 shows up, and that's Ray Liotta as Ray Sinclair. I know I shouldn't be asking you this. Oh, no, no, no. Anyway. Yeah. Audrey was always the hottest thing in school. (laughs) And I was wondering, what is she really like? What a gal, Ray. I mean, what a gal. She is. She's impulsive. And she imagination that just... No, 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 no. Quit. I mean, in bed. Oh, this... <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> oh, God. So, uh, well, she's... she's. Uh, uh, Come on, Charlie. You gotta admit, she looks like she can fuck you right in half. <laughs> I mean, just fuck you to pieces. Ray, there's no call for that kind of talk. He's so slimy right from the get-go. And it's like, it's great too because you're like watching this reunion that like seems pretty fun. They have live music played by the Feelies. It seems pretty wholesome. Yeah. It's nowhere near as backstabby as like Liz Lemon's reunion. No, it is not. And it's not as chaotic even as Linda's reunion in Bob's Burgers. But so, like, this is going on, and it's just, it's not a cut or anything. It's not anything fancy. It's just the camera pans over, and suddenly Ray is there, and suddenly the whole temperature of the movie changes. It really does. It's kind of crazy. It's so cool. And, I mean, that's it's a movie star moment. And that's our third point, then, is the the arrival of Ray Sinclair, who we pretty quickly learn is Audrey's ex-husband. Or, I guess, legally still husband, because as he points out, if she had divorced him, he would have gotten papers in prison. So he has just gotten out of prison. We're never told, but pretty clearly for violent crime. Yeah. He's in for five years, so that's pretty significant. And he's, like, looking for Audrey. 
and is immediately jealous of Charles. Who is this guy? What's he doing here? What makes him so special? And he's not just jealous. He is trying to assert his dominance over both of them. Because that's what he does. Right. He makes Charlie go along with him when he robs a convenience store at gunpoint. And breaks Charlie's nose. And then they end up back at a hotel room. Right. Ray, Ray at this point, Ray. basically, once he does the convenience, at first, it's just like kind of unsettling, where he's putting them in uncomfortable situations. Audrey is very uncomfortable. Charlie takes a while to catch on to it. Once the convenience store scene happens, Ray has basically kidnapped them. Like, they are his prisoners. And Charlie has been, like, wearing and carrying around the handcuffs that Audrey used during their first sexual encounter throughout the whole movie. Right, well, she wouldn't take them off until they were going to meet her mom. It's just also, <laughs> very. everyone just has convenient access to handcuffs throughout the movie, which I find very funny. Yeah. And yeah, so then he like leaves Charles behind and pretty much abducts Audrey at this point, right? Yeah. And like, I, part of it is Charlie sort of is escaping. Yes. With an intent of getting back and getting Audrey. Because he follows them the next, right. like, day and from a distance. This sequence is quite funny, where... It is. You know, Audrey is Ray's prisoner, and Charlie is just determined to try to find a way to sneak. And he's been beaten up, his nose has been broken, but he's, like, at a store buying binoculars so he can spy on them. He's wearing this big white Virginia is for lovers t-shirt, these white shorts. So he changes in the store... And strips down to his boxers and then puts shorts on over them that look exactly like his boxers, essentially. Did you notice that? Yes, They're like it's very the funny. same length. And I don't know if that was, it's probably supposed to be a joke, but I think that's also just what fashion looked like at the time. It's, it's just big clothes. Right. And when we think about big clothes in the 80s, we were usually thinking about like shoulder pads, but it's also big boxers. It is true. So then he confronts Ray and audrey at a diner all of the major scenes in this movie happen at restaurants essentially yeah because then they can have food in front of them and so charlie shows up and is like i'm taking audrey you can't do anything about it because there are cops at that table right there and you are carrying unregistered guns and breaking parole So he's able to blackmail Ray and stick Ray with the bill. Because it's hard to run out on a bill when cops are there. And he's taken Ray's wallet, too. And this takes us to our fourth point, which is the road back to New York. So, yeah, they drive back to New York. Along the way, at one point, they have, like, a very, I mean, like, in the spirit of romantic comedies, a very brief fight. Yes. Where she kicks it out. She throws him out of the car for having lied about being married. And that lasts... A scene? I love that he never drives. Audrey is always behind the wheel. Yeah. She's the take charge one. Yeah, so she kicks him out, then reverses, and yells at him, and then he explains, and then she basically takes him back right away. Classic rom-com. Like, it is one of the most perfunctory romantic fights. Yeah. So then they reach Manhattan. She goes to her place to get some stuff, but... The thing is, like, she can't stay there because Ray knows where she lives. Right. And so they go back to his house in the suburbs in Long Island. But unfortunately, when Charlie was being dumb, he had mentioned to Ray the town on Long Island that he lives in. And so Ray is able to use 411. Yeah, it seems very easy to just get people's addresses, even back then. Well, back then there were phone books, Mark. I know. Like, all this stuff was much easier. They used to, a couple times a year, deliver you a giant book with everyone's phone number. That's crazy. So then he, Ray, drives to Charles's house. And he bursts in. He's attacking Charlie. He eventually shackles Charlie in the bathroom with the handcuffs around a pipe in the sink. He goes in. We talked about this at the top. He's physically, he's like choking out Audrey. Charlie manages to break his way free. This is where this movie turns into like a wet t-shirt movie for the two guys. Both <laughs> wearing white t-shirts that get two totally soaked wet through. wet white tees. Because Charlie's ripped out the pipe. And this fight in the bathroom is really incredible because it's so tight in. Like, you know, we mentioned these Jonathan Demi shots where Ray is going back and forth between attacking each of them. He's dropped the knife that he had. And while Ray is attacking Audrey, Charlie picks up the knife 
He's like standing there. He calls Ray's name. Ray turns around and walks into the knife. But Charlie says like, Ray, no, to try and stop him from impaling himself. And you never see like the wound on Ray. Like you barely see the knife go in. It's just the two of their faces like right in the camera going back and forth. And when you see blood, it's this incredible visual where... Ray has touched the wound, and then he goes and, like, runs his hand through his hair. So it's this, like, striking, bright red blood, and the, the just piercing blue of Ray Liotta's eyes. It's just a, a crazy visual. And so then Ray dies. <laughs> yeah. And Audrey is taken away by the police, because they're like, oh, she identifies Ray as her husband. And they're like, oh, well, obviously we need to question you. Yes. And then they don't see each other. Yeah. Until we cut to the same diner from the beginning. In point five, Charlie has quit his job. And he's back at the same diner. And he does pay his bill this time. But he gets chased out by a waitress. Because apparently someone must have taken the five. Yeah, Sister Carol. Oh, and he has looked for Audrey. But she moved and didn't tell him where to go. I love this scene where he goes to her apartment. And he like rings the doorbell. And the woman just opens the window and is calling out like, oh yeah, I just moved in. The, the place was empty. Like, I have no idea where the previous tenant was. And then she calls him back and is like, do you know what her rent was? I think the landlord is cheating me. That was so good. And again, that's just like the little touches of like every little person in this movie has something going on. Is a person. Yeah. Yeah. And then we go to the diner. He's run out. He's getting accused of running out. And then Audrey shows up holding the five looking stunning. Never say goodbye. I never wanted to say goodbye. Wanna ride? She's got this hat. She's a great hat and like a little black dress on. Right, it's like her second total like recreation. And then basically they kiss. Yeah, and she invites him to join her for a drive you're just like at the beginning of the movie this time she has this preposterous car that's like made of wood it's so ridiculous like a wood paneled station wagon but the whole side is wood yeah it's absurd and they drive off and the camera turns back against the wall and sister carol just stands there singing wild thing right and then credits roll the end yeah so mark do you find the romance of something wild believable no (laughs) i do not (laughs) absolutely not It's not supposed to be believable, and it is not believable. It's a success. (laughs) Where would you rate this on our 10-point scale? Who knows? Like, on the low end. (laughs) I feel like we need a Z-axis for this movie. Yeah. Is this like a 2? I think it's a 2. Yeah. Do you think Charlie or Audrey is dateable? Not really. Um, Audrey seems exhausting to be around. Seriously. (laughs) And I think Charlie, like, is a financial criminal. He's a financial criminal that seems constantly on the edge of a breakdown. Because if he's willing to go along with this, there is something wrong with him, too. Yes, he is definitely on the edge of a breakdown. I'm going to let it slide on the Ray thing. I don't think that's murder. That's manslaughter. So our anti-murder policy doesn't really come into play. Do you think they'll stay together? I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't think so. I mean, it's always tricky... It's always tricky when we have a romance where we're like, this romance really isn't believable because we're asking the question, like, do we think this unbelievable thing would continue? Yeah, I don't think so. Audrey seems a little too flighty. I think they both want to stay together. Yes, that is true. Uh, I think we both will probably pick the same person, but if you had to choose one person to date, who would it be? Nelson. Obviously the convenience store guy. It's Nelson. In Virginia. Yeah. Nelson, the guy who runs the convenience store. Gas station. I cannot believe I'm saying a Virginian, but he's so great that here I am. I know. There's really only one correct answer in this. Otherwise, maybe Peaches. Yeah, Peaches is nice. Or you could uh, you could date Larry's wife. <laughs> um, okay. So, well, many of the movies we have covered on this podcast have been adapted onto The Great White Way. Do you think this should be made into a Broadway stage musical? Yes, please. I think it would be a very interesting musical. I would be delighted by it. And you still have to do the tonal shift. Oh, obviously. 
Yeah. I think it would be fantastically fun. Yeah. I think it would be good. Um, all right. I think that's about it. I'm glad that we have done this. We've actually put it on our like tentative schedule a couple of times and swapped it out for other stuff. And uh, you know, I am glad to have gotten to see it again. Next week, we will be doing our Halloween spooky episode with a classic horror movie I have never seen, Friday the 13th. I watched Halloween properly for the first time recently. I had like, seen part of it on TV before. And I'm going to try to knock out another one of the classic slashers before doing this so I can come in with some real context. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from this movie? Literally, I was about to immediately say, just be yourself, but no one in this movie is themselves. <laughs> just be yourself or someone dies. Yikes. I'm going to say, be willing to try new things. Even if they seem very alarming sometimes. I'm going to say, be open for love at every diner you go to. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.